Well, whoever would have dreamed that we would be here? Airports in chaos, cruise lines essentially shut down, professional sports abandoned, at least for the time being, stock market involunt uh, uh, volatile, I hope that word came out correctly, and here we are at a time of crisis of our nation, and I don't need to emphasize that because we all know how true it is. Today I'd like to speak to you on the topic of what to do when you don't know what to do. And we're going to be speaking about the Cornova crisis, Corona crisis. First of all, let me say that there are certain misconceptions that people have about this crisis. First of all, they think that it's going to disappear quickly. Probably not. We certainly hope for the best, but we have to plan for the worst. We have to recognize the fact that there are certain things put in motion, there are certain dominoes that are falling that are going to have a long-term effect. So we are so thankful for our politicians, we're thankful for those who work with them, and certainly the healthcare people, the professionals, to try to put an end to this as soon as possible. But as one healthcare professional said, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and I might say it might get very worse before it gets better, and we need to be prepared. There's a second misconception it's easy to have, and that is that uh, this has never really happened before, that this is very unique. That, of course, is totally wrong. All that you have to do is to look through history and you discover that in the Old Testament you have the word pestilence, and that meant some things like the plague, various things that happened, and all throughout history. If you look online, you can discover that possibly there have been 15 pandemics, and many of these were localized in certain countries. I mean, I'm thinking about the Black Death, for example, in Europe. The Black Death that uh, killed between 75 and 100 million people, sometimes a third of the congregation, a third of the population in a certain city, all died. And then a hundred years ago, we have what is known as the Spanish flu. That's a little bit misnamed because the fact is that Spain had really nothing to do with it. But the point is, 75 million, some people are saying, 20 to 75 million people put to death as a result of the flu. The world has been here before, and we need to learn from those who have gone before us. And we need to understand what the scriptures have to say at this critical moment. There's a third misconception that we can have, and that is that, um, you know, this virus is going to increase death. No, it won't, because those who died in plagues and pestilence and viruses, those who died in those contexts would have died anyway. Now, I'm not saying that in a hard-hearted way, but C.S. Lewis makes this point. You perhaps read online how he talks about the bomb, which 70 years ago was of concern to England. And C.S. Lewis said that uh, people were so concerned they lived in huddles and fear constantly. And he said, really, we were sentenced to death before the bomb was even invented, he said, because we are all born with an expiration date. 
We all know that at some point we are going to die. Now, meanwhile, what we want to do is to stave off death as far as we possibly can, of course. And that's why we should all be doing what our healthcare professionals are telling us to do. It's very difficult, but we should be doing it. Social distancing, as the phrase has become, should be a part of what we are doing. Not only that, but uh, the cleaning of surfaces and the washing of our hands, making sure that everything that we touch is unique and clean. But I have to tell you, that's more difficult than uh, we perhaps realized it was. On Friday evening, Rebecca and I were out with some of our family members, and we were out for dinner in a restaurant, and I didn't eat any bread that was brought to us in the basket because I thought, you know, it could be. I don't know who touched that bread. Somebody put it in the basket. You know, my uh, nose began to itch, and I thought to myself, I have to itch it, so I used the cloth, the cloth uh, that was given to us. But even so, I wondered, who is it that really took that cloth, and uh, who is it that folded it. And so you begin to think, and what was most interesting is on the way home I had to stop, stop for gasoline. And uh, I drove the car there and I knew that that handle on that nozzle was filled with viruses. I looked at it and I thought if there's anyone and at any time in history who's going to get the coronavirus, that's where it's going to be. Well, I had a good plan. I had uh, some uh, gloves in the car. So, you know, I, I put in the credit card, and then when it came time for me to type in those numbers of the zip code, I realized I can't do that with gloves on. So I used my finger, and I knew that every single one of those was filled with viruses. And then when I got into the car, I said, okay, it's time for me to use some wash for my hands. And um, I did that, and then I realized, you know, I already opened the car door, which meant that the viruses were actually on the handle of the car. And then I got finally into the condo, and I thought, well, at last. And I rushed into the bathroom, and I washed my hands very thoroughly for at least 15 seconds, and then I realized, you know, I already contaminated the door handle. Now, it's possible for us to become, you know, so obsessed with what is happening, paranoid, but what we have to do is to do everything that we possibly can. But I tell you this story for this reason, and that is that it is not possible if we're going to live anything that is semi-normal to be totally isolated from what might happen. And you might receive the virus, and I might receive the virus, despite all of the things that we are doing to try to prevent it. So we cooperate fully with the healthcare professionals. We do whatever we can. But at the same time, there are no guarantees unless, of course, you live somewhere in a bubble. So what do we do? What do we do when we don't know what to do? Let me tell you a story that comes to us from the Old Testament. It's actually found in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you don't have to look at it now. You can read it later because I'm going to tell you the story. There is a king, and his name is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and uh, he is there. He's responsible for the people. And suddenly word comes to him that there are three armies that have united together to come and wipe you out. The Bible says that Jehoshaphat was afraid, and you and I don't blame him. 
talk about panic. But he prays to God and he says this in verse 12. He tells God three things. He says, number one, he said, we are powerless against this horde that is coming toward us. We are totally powerless. But he said, number two, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. But then number three, he says, our eyes are on you. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. Now I can imagine somebody watching this and listening and saying, well, Pastor Luther, that seems to be so irrelevant. Suddenly our eyes are supposed to be on God. Maybe you're a vendor and you lost your job because the NBA isn't playing. You may be a restaurant owner who has to let some people go because business has fallen so dismally. And you ask yourself the question, where are they going to find work? Maybe you're a single mother and you have children in the school system and you're afraid that when the schools are shut down, if they are, you'll have to get a nanny and then will you have enough money to pay the nanny and on and on it goes. The ripple effects goes along and people are afraid and many are choosing panic. Let's learn something though from Jehoshaphat the king. Jehoshaphat the king decided to the people, he said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray, we're not going to panic. He gathers the people together and he calls a fast. And the Bible says that the people came from all the different cities of Judah, they gathered together and in that context, they began to pray and to call on God. The text says they began to seek God. You know, in the Old Testament times when they called a fast, what that really meant was very clearly that the people were absolutely desperate. This was not a time to pray little prayers, Lord, if we've committed some sin, forgive us. This was a time when people prayed to God very specifically because they knew that they had to repent of their sin. They knew that they had to deal with issues. And so he calls a fast and says, it's time to pray. And the people respond. Not only that, he prays and asks them to pray based on the promises of God. That's in verse 7. The promise that he used was one that God gave to Abraham that God intended to give Israel the land. And so that's the promise. That promise does not apply to us because we are not Israel. America is not Israel. The church is not Israel. But when you and I pray, what we need to do is to make sure that we pray the promises of God. And we can go to the New Testament and there we find literally hundreds and dozens of promises that apply to us. I'm thinking, for example, of the words of Jesus to his disciples when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God to believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Jesus Christ giving us hope in the midst of our crisis. Or we could go to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I love this. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that there's nothing else they can do, but fear him, rather, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I tell you, fear him, Jesus said, namely, fear God. And then Jesus tenderly says this. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet one does not fall to the ground except that your heavenly Father notices it. One day when we owned a house, I noticed that there was a sparrow on the ground, evidently had hit our window. 
window in the house and fell down. And I thought to myself, you know, God was here last night because he watched that sparrow fall. And Jesus said, the very hair of your head, those hair are numbered, he said. God has such accurate information about you. And the Jesus tenderly says, do not be afraid. You are of so much more value than many sparrows. God's got you covered, Jesus said. We can hang on to promises such as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will no not leave you and I will no not forsake you. That's the way it is in Greek. Five negatives, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. Never, 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 the text says, will we be forsaken by God. You need wisdom. Bible says in James chapter 1 verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, and certainly we do, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid them, and that wisdom shall be given to them. These are the promises that we must pray at a time of crisis. You know, many of us have been praying that there would be a revival in America. Many of us have been praying that the Church of Jesus Christ would be brought to its knees long ago. I stopped trying to reclaim the culture because I realized that might be impossible. I said to myself, it's time for us to reclaim the church. The church has to be reclaimed. And this crisis during the days of Jehoshaphat brought the nation to its knees and our crisis today can bring the church of Jesus Christ to its knees when finally we call on God in desperation. This is not a time for us to pray little prayers, God help us. This is a time when we pray, God deliver us. This is not a time when we simply pray, Lord be our guide. This is a time when we pray, Lord you be our king. This is not a time when we simply pray that God might be able to help us limp along and be our crutch. Oh no, this is a time when we need a miracle. This is not a time when we simply say, well, we need some good advice, accept all the good advice you can. But this is a time when we say we need godly wisdom because we don't know what to do. And so what we must do is to recognize, as Jehoshaphat did, that is, if God doesn't show up, we're done. The Church of Jesus Christ is at that place today. If God doesn't show up, we're finished. And God loves those desperate prayers. So let's pray desperately. I'm so glad for the announcement that there might be a virtual prayer meeting. If the technology is there, let it be there. But these are prayers that need to be prayed of deep, sustained, daily repentance, because those are the prayers that God answers. So uh, the first thing that Jehoshaphat says is, we're going to pray, we're not going to panic. The second thing that Jehoshaphat says is, and this might be most remarkable, we're going to praise, we are not going to flee, we're not going to run. Maybe it's been a while since you've read this passage of scripture, but it is truly remarkable. A prophet speaks and uh, then Jehoshaphat bows his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fall down before the Lord. <laughs> this is really a, a national revival so far as Judah is concerned. 
And then uh, Jehoshaphat has the wisdom to say, let's have a talk as to how we're going to approach this battle. And he decides, who are the singers? This morning we had some wonderful singers. Are you a singer? Are you a singer? Who, who knows how to sing? And people raised their hands and said, I know how to sing. And then he said to them, what I want you to do is to go into the battle first and the army will follow you. I'm not making it up. It says in verse 21, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, and he says, this is what I want you to sing. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, most of us think that praise should come after the victory is won. What Jehoshaphat recognized is that praise is the way you win the victory. You win the victory by praising, by walking into the fire, by walking into the situation, but you do so with praise. Because the Bible says, first of all, those who offer praise glorify me, God says. That's one reason we all want to glorify God. But there's another reason why it's so important for us to praise is because praise actually births faith in our hearts. And we must keep that in mind. Faith is the engine that God uses and singing and song and praise is the way in which we enter into those promises. And that must be done up front. There was a couple of Christians who were doing some shopping. They got everything that they wanted. They put it into the van. And later on, when they went to the van, they discovered that uh, a window had been broken into and everything that they bought was stolen. How does a Christian react to that? Or more accurately, how should a Christian react to that? Well, one way would be, of course, to call the police, which they did. But then they had a little prayer meeting. And they thanked God for this. Because after all, the Bible says, in everything give thanks. Because they recognized that there was no way that God would permit their van to be broken into unless he intended it to bear fruit in their lives. Praise brings to us the blessings of God. So how do we face this crisis? We face it with praise and singing. And by the way, praise and singing is a way in which we intentionally glorify God, and in the process of glorifying God, that faith is birthed in our hearts. Many of you know Johnny Erickson Tada, in a wheelchair for 50 years, quadriplegic, has blessed millions because of her testimony and because of her books. A couple of months ago, Rebecca and I were in Nashville for the National Christian Broadcasters Association, and she was there, and she brought a 15-minute devotional. What the emphasis was is intentionally praising God through song. Now, she actually sings. I don't, so I won't bore you with my singing, but she broke out in song, and she told the story of how much pain she is in daily. She said that um, she was in her wheelchair, which of course has to be wheeled up and put into a van. And of course, then it is secured and her husband, Ken, was driving to the office that they have. And along the way, she was in so much pain. She says, take the first exit, take me back home. I can't endure this anymore. And then she remembered the power of intentional praise and singing. And she began to break out in song and she was able to make it to the office. But what song 
did she sing? Well, there are many songs that she could sing, but let me tell you about one of them. There was a man by the name of Joseph Scribbon. He was an Irishman. He was about to marry a young woman whom he deeply loved, and the day before the wedding, she drowned. When her body was pulled out of the water, something happened to him. It was as if he went into shock, and he never really fully recovered. The hurt was so deep. He thought that he would um, change venues, and so he went from Ireland to Canada, where he began to minister, and many years later, he fell in love with another young woman who died unexpectedly a couple of weeks before the marriage. He decided afterwards that he would become committed to helping the poor. He would be committed to making sure that his entire life and focus would now be one of celibacy in the sense that he would be committed to the single life helping the handicapped. His mother back in Ireland was sick and he wasn't able to go back because he didn't have enough money, so he wrote her a poem. And that poem was taken and music was put to it and it was used by Dwight L. Moody in his great crusades. And that poem is what Johnny Erickson Tata sang. And perhaps you're used to it because I grew up singing the song. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Are you weak and heavy-hardened, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior is our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll gladly shield you. You will find a solace there. By the way, he died without knowing that his poem would become a song and that 200 years later, a woman quadriplegic in suffering would sing that. But Johnny's point was we have to be intentional in praise because it is praise that wins the battle. And we go into this battle, this crisis that we are facing now in the world, and we go into it with singing and song and joy because we believe that God is absolutely, totally sovereign. After that, Hezekiah, or I should say Jehoshaphat, he began to proclaim the name of the Lord and uh, give God the glory after God won the victory. And by the way, I should read this to you. It says, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against these armies and won the battle. It's praise that will do it. Now what I'd like to do is to recognize that in the New Testament, there is information as to how to face these trials. Obviously, God doesn't always do what he did in Jehoshaphat's time to bring this kind of deliverance. So what we must do is to look at what does the New Testament say about trials? How does this help us with the uh, Cornoa crisis? How do we get through this? And what I'd like to do is to give you three truths that I hope that you remember. Three truths that you should remember that are based on the New Testament. First of all, God does not have to deliver us. God does not have to deliver us to prove his faithfulness. 
Obviously, throughout history, the Church of Jesus Christ has suffered a great deal. And uh, the Apostle Paul faces this directly in Romans chapter 8. Paul is speaking and uh, he knows that there are some people who might think that when they go through trials, this counts against God's love for them and he wants them to know it does not count against God's love. So he lists seven possibilities that could separate us from the love of Christ that someone might think would separate us from the love of Christ. So he, he uh, thinks about this and he lists these seven. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, will tribulation do it? Will distress do it? Persecution, famine, there are many Christians that have uh, been so hungry that they have died. Nakedness, absolute destitution and poverty, will it separate us from the love of Christ? What about danger or sword? No. Well, what about the virus? What about the virus, corona virus? Will it separate us from God? Paul left that out, you might say. Well, the Apostle Paul knew that throughout history there would be people who would think these kinds of thoughts, and so he went on to say, I believe that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other thing in all creation will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that includes our present crisis with this virus. God is with us. And what we must do is to realize that we are never separated from his love. So that's the first thing we must learn. Remember this, that in the New Testament especially, we are never promised a smooth ride. We are only promised a very safe ending. Safe ending, safe landing, but not a smooth ride. And um, whether God delivers us or doesn't, his faithfulness and his love is sure. There's a second truth that we must recognize and that God uses crises as an opportunity for us to declare our witness. God uses crises. I remember Charles Colson saying on one occasion, he said that whenever somebody in the world gets cancer, God allows a Christian to get cancer so that the world could tell the difference because Christians handle their crisis differently. They handle all of the suffering in a different way. We think, for example, of uh, Cyprian. Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa. I want you to think of North Africa now, and uh, there's a plague that comes. And Cyprian is involved as a minister of the gospel. And what he said is really remarkable. He said that this plague was the greatest blessing that could have come. And he said that because it was the plague that gave the people the opportunity to declare their faith and to help people to recognize how different Christians handled it. You see, during those days, the wicked, they, the pagans, they had no way to rejoice if somebody died. There was just this sense of hopelessness. The Christians knew of the hope of heaven, and Cyprian said that the pagans said of the Christians, they carried their dead as if in triumph. 
And all the pagans said, where in the world is all that hope coming from? Why is it that you are able to endure your trials so well? And that was the question that the pagans wanted answered, and then the Christians would tell them about Christ. There is hope in Christ. By the way, speaking of that, and I do have a quote here from Cyprian. Uh, he said, how suitable, Cyprian said, how reassuring it is that this plague, this pestilence has come. What a horrible and deadly event, he says. But he said it, it elicited the character of the Christians and the pagans saw the difference and they savingly believed. Bishop Sam Will, who died in a hail of gunfire with Anwar Sadat in the early 80s, told a friend of mine how Christianity spread throughout North Africa. And Bishop Sam Will said that during those plagues, the Christians acted differently. The pagans took the bodies and just simply disposed of them. And the Christians always wanted to give the pagans a good burial because they believed that even though they were pagan, in light of the resurrection, the body was something that should be taken care of as best as possible. As a matter of fact, during those days, they didn't have abortion like we do. And so the church organized baby runs because people who had babies who wanted to get rid of them just left them out on the street. And uh, the baby could cry, you could take it and uh, bring it home if you wanted to, but if not, I'm sure it was given some comfort care but it was allowed to die. And so what the church did is they organized baby runs. They told young men, you run along this street, you run along that street, because what we need to do is to find these abandoned babies. And they were brought to nursing mothers who loved them as if they were their own. And the pagans said, where in the world is all that love coming from? That's the way Christianity spread throughout North Africa. This is a great opportunity for us to be the church and to act differently than the world. I think, for example, of Martin Luther. Remember Luther during that plague that came to Wittenberg in 1537. He was in a very difficult place and his emperor wanted him to leave. I should say his prince wanted him to leave because after all he was an important man and Luther wrote an essay about whether or not Christians should flee the plague. And he said this, if you have no responsibilities, you can flee. But if you have a responsibility as a magistrate, as a caregiver, or even as a pastor, he said you should stay. So he and Katie actually had six sick people come into their home and they worked with people who had the plague because Luther said, there is no better way to die ultimately than to die to give your life for someone else. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so what we have to do is to recognize that during this time, we have to respond correctly to this crisis. By the hand, Club for Kids. All of us know about this marvelous ministry that was begun here in the Moody Church perhaps almost 20 years ago. Time goes so quickly. It's having a great impact in this city. Children are being uh, led in the faith. They are being taught. It's an after-school program, but it's a holistic after-school program. So Danita, who is the founder and the a CEO and all the other responsibilities that fall on her shoulders. She called me the other day and just filled with praise. 
She was talking about how wonderful God is and the plans that are being made so that if the school system shuts down, how are they going to get meals to these kids? Because after all, these kids depend upon them for their meals. And then later on, she sends me an email with about 19 different suggestions that the staff has come up with as to how they can help these children if the school system shuts down. So what you have here is a proper response to a crisis. This is no time for us to retreat. And by the way, since we're on the topic, this is no time for people to stop giving to their church because ministry continues. Expenses continue. And God is looking to us to be faithful in the midst of this crisis and to act differently because crisis really reveals character. Crisis reveals character. There's a third lesson that we must learn, and that is that God is most glorified when we think about the future, when we look beyond this world to the next and live in light of all of the values of the coming kingdom. That's the way God is glorified. And the only way you can do this is through a life of praise. Let me introduce to you a pastor in Germany who lived during the 1600s. His name was Martin Rinkert. Martin Rinkert was the pastor in a little town in Germany called Ellenburg, and Ellenburg is not only a little town, it's also a district there in Germany. And uh, Rinkert was about the only pastor that survived because there was a tremendous plague that came there a hundred years after the time of Luther, 1637. And it was also a town where soldiers were living and coming because this was the beginning of what was known as the Thirty Years' War. A huge plague came to the area. It is said that Martin Rinkert buried 4,000 people in a single year, sometimes 50 a day, 50 funerals a day. Obviously, he gathered people together and they would have a mass funeral. Here was a man who was going through all this, and yet he had time to praise God. And we know that he had time to praise God because words that he wrote were sung in the area after the Thirty Years' War was over. Maybe you will recognize what Rinkert wrote. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done in whom the world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. When this plague came, he said to himself, I'm not going to panic, I'm going to pray. I'm going to praise, I'm not going to run, I'm going to be here, and I'm going to trust God through this and bless God no matter what happens. No wonder he is a tremendous hero of faith. He looked in the world to come for his values. 
The best example of this, of course, is Jesus Christ. The Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. So it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus could have gotten out of this. He came to this world to redeem us, and the Bible says he told his disciples, you don't have to try to defend me because if I wanted to, I could call on my father and he'd send 12 legions of angels, which is about 72,000 angels. I could have them at any moment. And Jesus came to redeem us. Because I need to tell you that the worst crisis that you have is not corona crisis. The worst virus that you have is not that, it is the virus of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, this contagion fell throughout the entire human race and every one of us is born with sin. It's a terrible virus. As a matter of fact, it is not only a terrible vi uh, virus, but the problem is, number one, there is no cure for it. It is the kind of virus that not will simply take your life, as the virus is that we're talking about here today. It's not going to simply take your life. It'll actually take your spiritual life. It is the virus of sin, and Jesus comes to our world and says, I came to redeem you from this. He came to redeem his people from their sins, the Bible says. And Jesus Christ gave his life voluntarily so that you and I could be redeemed, so that our sin can be taken away, and so that we can be reconciled to God. And the sin virus is the worst virus you can imagine. And it has no cure. It's not as if scientists are able to find such a thing as a vaccine because it exists within the human heart beyond simply the physical body but also the spirit and only God can do that. And Jesus died so that we might be able to take care of that virus so that we might live with God forever. Rebecca and I know a family that has a little dog by the name of Annie. Annie is a dog runs around, kind of owns the house, acts as if she owns the house, maybe she does. But the owners told us that Annie was lame and they spent $7,000 for surgery so that Annie would be able to walk. And we may question whether or not you should spend $7,000 for a dog. That's a separate question. The point I want to make is this. Annie has no idea how much it costs for her to walk. All that she knows is that at one time she was very lame and now she can walk and she can scamper. You and I have no idea how much Jesus actually paid to redeem us. It is beyond the realm of our imagination. There is so much mystery committed as we think about Jesus Christ on the cross. And that mystery is something that we cannot enter into because it exists in another realm. But when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, and he redeemed us, that price was paid so that you and I would be able to be redeemed forever. And once you have taken care of the sin virus, all the other viruses fade into large insignificance. It is because Jesus died for us that we have hope. 
Oh, you say, well, Pastor Lutzer, I'm finding this very difficult to believe. Come with your doubts. I love the words of the song, Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. If you're watching online, and most of you are, this is a moment in which you can pray with us. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior if you've never believed on him, and if you have believed on him, let this be a time of commitment, a time of understanding, knowing that God has brought us to this hour for this reason, that we might glorify him. That's our first question. He will give us the wisdom, he'll give us the strength, and he will give us what we need to be faithful to him all the way to the finish line. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank you today for your mercy and grace. We thank you for Jesus who came. Corona is nothing in comparison to the virus of sin that Jesus came so that we might have a cure. We ask today, Father, that there might be many people who believe on you. May they come to Christ and know that they can be accepted if they receive him personally as their Savior through faith and repentance. And we pray that at this time of history that the church, this church and other churches might be the church representing Jesus Christ well at a time of panic, time of unanswered questions. We ask that we might learn from Jehoshaphat who said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. May that be true in our experience, we ask in Jesus' blessed name.